Welcome back to What Would Mozart Do? Today, I am talking to Tessa Marchington, a businesswoman, entrepreneur and pianist. We discuss Tessa's extensive work of transforming the corporate business sector through music participation and highlight how she transfers the skills typical to her work as a collaborative pianist to the world of business and management. Hello, Tessa. How are you? Very well, thank you, Nico. Um, lovely to be here. Thank you for having me. That's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for joining me. Can I uh, congratulate you first on your uh, grant from the Arts Council England for your research project where you are planning on exploring the value of artist placements in business? And I'm sure that we will be discussing that at some point in our chat today. Uh, but can I ask you to first introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So I'm a, a musician, primarily. Musician, entrepreneur, and more recently a consultant. I began my professional journey at the Royal Academy of Music, where I was studying as a postgraduate specialising in piano accompaniment. And it was there that I had the sort of first light bulb moment, if you like, of setting up my company Music in Offices, and as you know more than anyone, Nico, the bubble that you're in, in that conservatory environment is just a bubble of creativity, of inspiration and of music making. And it's some, as an environment I hadn't really found myself in prior to that postgraduate time. So um, in contrast, at the same time, my brother was actually working in a law firm as a, uh, as a graduate, as an associate. And the contrast in our outlook at the time and, and how positive I was and how stressed he was. I just felt that if I could transfer some of this creativity over there into the, the business sector, then um, perhaps is the, the culture would be a little bit um, healthier and happier. And that's how Music and Offices began. A year later, after graduating from the Royal Academy of Music, I co-founded a festival with pianist Wu Chen, a good childhood friend of mine, uh, in Jersey, and that was the Liberation Music Festival. We then handed that over in a way to the to Jersey people in Jersey who continue it to this day, and we set it up in Surrey, where we both grew up, and Chen was at the Yehudi Menuhin School there, which made a lot more sense to us. And that's um, now that well, was the Surrey Hills Festival, now the Investec International Music Festival, which last year we uh, celebrated the 10th anniversary of. And then after setting up the Investec Music Festival with, with, with Chen, that continued really the work and my work for the next few years was music and offices, playing and teaching the piano and, um, and working with, with Chen on the, on the Investec International Music Festival. And then I had my second daughter, um, which allowed us to spend six months in Lisbon in 2017 for a total change of scene. My husband's an artist and, um, and we felt that, that was the right time to have a, have a different, different space. And indirectly, on return from that six-month sabbatical, if you like, I reconnected with Ian Ritchie, who was the director of the City of London Festival, who founded the Setubal Music Festival near Lisbon, just the other side of the bridge. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. Lisbon at all but it's a beautiful area um and i think it's just serendipitous really and my interest my focus was very much around health and well-being and the role that music has in the health and well-being area so i helped coordinate the health and well-being symposium there as part of the festival which ian had created in the most inclusive 
way. The model of the Satuba Festival is inspiring and perhaps something we can talk about uh, later on. So for two years, I was coordinating the Health and Wellbeing Symposium for the Setubal Music Festival. Mm-hmm. And then this year, um, I've taken over from Ian as artistic director of the of the festival over there. Although sadly, in this current environment, it's postponed and then it was cancelled in November. So I'm not quite sure where, that, where we're at with that. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's sort of um, everything going on at the moment or not going on at the moment. It's, we're constantly needing to find ways of being creative or making peace with the fact that something that we had worked hard for is being postponed or put on ice or cancelled or perhaps changes in a completely um in in such a way that it actually becomes a completely different project um i think that's that's something that we all are learning to get used to do you think though that i'm going to go right back to your background first as a collaborative pianist that need for us when we work with singers or instrumentalists we, we need to be able to adapt very quickly and constantly. You know, it's very much based on how they breathe or how they play a phrase and what we are doing alongside that, not necessarily behind or ahead. You know, it's sort of, we need to anticipate what they're going to do all the time. So the, these kind of skills from collaborative piano, which do you think are the ones that, you are using regularly at the at the moment in all your different ventures, but especially then also in the situation that we're in now, where as as we say, things change constantly. I think what jumps out is listening. I mean, mm-hmm. listening is at the heart of everything I have created or I have worked with other people for listening to what is needed, listening to conversations, whether that's negotiating with partners in law firms or contracts, or whether that's actually listening to a brief, mm-hmm. or or like you say, directly, that, that notion of being with other people, every with music and officers, but often curating workshops and the themes I get given to, to curate could be allyship, for example, all these buzzwords that in the corporate world, they they create marketing campaigns around, but actually as musicians, it's just inherent. And the, the skill is in articulating what we already feel and know into a language which can be shared, understood, and then actually can break in new ways of thinking through that, through that shared language, whether it's allyship, uh, another one could be agile thinking, and that's exactly mm-hmm. what you're saying, you know, but for the corporate world, it's agile thinking. And as musicians, we know it as, listening or improvising or adapting yeah. following leading you know we're, we're sort of where the most everything is so heightened as 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 accompanists as pianists as musicians and ensembles playing together chamber music collaboration you know that is just it's a skill that we've learned for maybe 30 years just as for being musicians mm-hmm. so sometimes when you ask you know who what are you? I think at the heart of everything, I always will be a musician. I'm not performing professionally at the moment, and I'm probably, you know, perhaps won't again. I don't know yet. But at the at the heart of what we do is listening. I think that's the key to to um, to everything. Yeah. And what strikes me from what you've just said is there's obviously different vocabulary 
for the same things or same concepts, depending on the different uh, sectors that you're working in. And, and I guess this is something that you learn over time and that you become more aware of over time. But if we talk about these skills, did you know that you had them ready at hand when you finished college to go into the corporate world and do consultancy work or to adapt your thinking, adapt your language? Um, or is it something that you've learned over time? And what was that journey? How did how did those pennies drop? And they're still dropping. I'm still learning. Wonderful. <laughs> but, I, but that's exactly it. It's language, but it's also a clarity of knowing what you are bringing. And, and, mm. and that might be, it's the context that you're working in. It's the audience you're talking to. And as I left college, for me, it was just about this passion for bringing music into different aspects of society. At that point, it was the corporate world with a view to raising money for charities, with a view to engagement, with a view to more participation. I just studied um, at university African music and African literature. And that was mm-hmm. you know, my absolute uh, just inspiration for the role that music played in in African society and, and singing and how much we'd lost that, how far away we had come, I think, at, and maybe we're coming back to it, but I just felt that that stark contrast between the law law environment that my brother was in and, and I was in, that was the first time I'd seen that so clearly, how much we need the arts and music to be just valued more, but also understood. And, and in that participation, at that time, my hope was just that through participation of people who thought that they didn't have time for music making by bringing it into their environment, by making it part of the benefits packages. And that's the language which actually I only learned four years later, benefits package. You know, I was very much naive about just make it happen, bring have music, share music making, but without that corporate language. So it took a while for it to become a business mm-hmm. because I wasn't using business language and I wasn't really speaking to the right people internally which now you know lnd learning and development dni diversion including you know, and also the corporate world the culture has has changed and morphed so now there isn't an hr mm-hmm. per se you know, hr is divided into so many categories so it's you know corporate culture has changed but with that change my messaging has changed but the purpose has never changed that purpose of just music and the arts being part of the fabric of our society whether that's in the corporate world or in prisons or in hospitals you know that for me that that purpose has got just got stronger and stronger so what i hear from that is that you from the beginning realized the benefit that music can have on society at large and in the process you learned to realize your own value for, for the bigger society. Because I think that is something that, um, especially if you think of students who, who are finishing um, conservatoire or their music degrees at university, coming out of the bubble, they sometimes know they've got something to give and they know they want to give something, but they don't know where to go with it. They don't know where to start. So what would you say to a student who is in that situation where where do they go 
Well, yeah, I do. I run these creative thinking clinics for exactly that um, sort of level of students because that is the hardest bridge to to jump over from leaving the the conservative bubble to being a professional. There's two, three years of really searching around. And at uh, my festival in Surrey, we have concerts specifically for that um, age group for graduates to give them mm-hmm. some platforms. And you know, I think there are a lot of that's a real gap. And people assume once you've left, you're made. But of course, you're not. So, my what I what I do say to to graduates or music and officers teachers who often are in that position, and and music mm-hmm. and officers gives them that that way to be able to to teach and pay the bills in a, a very efficient way, whilst then allowing the rest of the week to be for creativity and have that community. So, I'd suggest sort of finding your purposes really and that doesn't have to happen immediately and that will change and organically grow you know we're all still redefining that especially now but I think Mm -hmm. it's you know just follow what you you're good at follow what you enjoy and and find people who are also doing similar things it's really hard to to emulate as musicians we're always trying to find our own voice and our own sort of unique interpretation of life and of music but but seeing how other people are juggling or managing a portfolio career in that area that you want to do, whether it's community music making, whether it's health and well-being, you know, they're all, it's, it's all interconnected. And and I think, you know, musicians are very generous people and, and do want to help. So just the more talking to people you have, more connecting, that's how you'll find your way. Yes, because I, I think because we, as artists in the broader sense of the word, as artists, we always want to sort of put our own stamp on it. We want to maintain our individuality. And I think especially for that age group, it's it's easy to feel, well, I need to do something really extraordinarily different to everybody else in order to make it or in order to stand out. Whereas it's finding a path alongside what other people are doing and in that way, over time, honing your own skill and find finding a voice for that individuality. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I think over time, that's the key, isn't it? Over yeah. time. And only patience. you can, Patience, but really only you can do what you do like you do it. And, mm-hmm. and to continue, I think, instilling that sense of confidence in, in people. You know, if you're choosing to do something, it's because you're good at it, most likely. Yes. And, I think trying to find a different way of doing it just to try and carve, you know, isn't, well, you know, isn't the way to do it, is it? It's just working well with other people, collaborating in a very open way, being open to ideas and projects, but also knowing when they aren't necessarily the right ones for you. That's also really key. Yeah. Um, but that comes again with time, doesn't it? The more clarity you have over what, what your path is and what you want to be giving, mm-hmm. then the more, the easier it will become to say no and to really hone in and finesse that path, which will over time then mark you out as, as uh, yeah. As a specialist or a, or a creative in that specific line. Exactly, yeah. Now, we've, we've sort of touched on the pandemic slightly, but I'm interested to hear how has what has been going on over now coming up for a year, how has that affected your work in music in offices? Well, very quickly, 
we adapted online. I mean, mm-hmm. like, like so many people, but we, I think within the first two days, we had gone on to Zoom. Just, you know, there was an urgency about it, absolute yep. urgency to, to, to maintain the community that we have, to maintain the value of not just the lessons and the choirs, but actually what you know what music and officers I hope is is about is this community but also the events online now online listening clubs um concerts you know very much it's very much about coming together and that's mm-hmm. again purpose of music and officers at the beginning was about bringing people together through music so we've definitely suffered business-wise you know numbers are, are a lot lower however companies have been really good they place such an emphasis on culture and engagement for their employees and and the health and well-being side of singing together you know has not you can't um dispute the testimonials that we've had coming in which we asked for actually you know actively had to ask for to 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 in a sense at the beginning i felt we had to still we had to justify to the budget holders in a very crude way you know how an online choir is going to be just as effective as a when they're not doing that so much of the the networking because another mm-hmm. you know big area of music offices is networking within choirs within businesses and and sometimes that happens organically but more often than not we're actually affecting that those partnerships and mm-hmm. building those networks so um yeah i mean in answer to your question it's still very much up and running we have about 100 over 100 pupils each week having online lessons our teachers have been working, you know, very hard to deliver um, lessons at very flexible times. And the choirs have actually worked, I think, in many ways, a lot better. They've been a lot more open to international collaborations. Firms with global um, companies have been able to just immediately open it up. Yeah. Um, in As well, we've done that with families and had children's concerts, children of our pupils. You know, it's, it's been a very sort of, that we've managed to maintain that that sense of community and the informality that that is there in events has sort of crossed over into the home life um, yeah. and that that also springs i guess from the fact that you've you've built up such a network and a foundation for the program before you know you you had a a strong audience base if you like in in the uh, companies that you worked with, um, the the students or the employees that are either singing or playing instruments, etc., taking lessons, and so you've done all the groundwork for it that made actually the the switch to online work. Of course, there's a practicality of going from in person to online, but. Psychologically, I suppose that switch was not too complicated because people, the trust had been built already that this is a needed commodity. Exactly. And what has been hard has been finding new business. I mean, there are some companies which specialize in team building, which you know, obviously we do for our clients and we do <laughs> workshops, but it's not been necessarily what we've been pitching ourselves as, positioning ourselves as. So for us, we haven't, we haven't won as much new business as we would have. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that way, it's been difficult because like you say, because of the trust or because people actually are not investing in new ways of bringing, keeping their culture together. They are maintaining the old ways yep. and doing the odd 
party here and there, but something that's sustainable. I think people are waiting, still waiting to be have this hybrid model um, come into effect. I think, and there's a lot of people, a lot of our pupils who've left us have actually honestly said they've left at the moment because they just don't know. You know they've they passed, they've been made redundant, or they've left their secondment, and they just don't know their the pattern of their week or when they're mm-hmm. going to be in. So there's a lot of uncertainty, which has led to a lot of people just waiting until the dust settles, if it does. Yeah, hopefully. Um, <laughs> so if I may ask, I mean, I mentioned your Arts Council Award grant earlier. Do you Are you at liberty to share what you are going to do, what the project is, how this connects with all your other endeavours? Definitely, yeah. I mean, I... It's funny, it's and everything is with hindsight, you see how things have been bubbling away. And in about 2012, I met a lady called Barbara Latham, who was the wife of uh, British artist John, uh, John Latham. Um, my husband's an artist, so it was sort of through his, his connections. And she sadly died last year, age 91, but she was an incredible dynamo of a lady, of an artist in her own right. But in the 70s, she set up a group called the Artist Placement Group. Mm-hmm. with Yoko Ono, with her husband John Latham, with a, a really revolutionary group of um, artists with the idea and with the results of placing artists into industry mm-hmm. to affect change, to to challenge. But really the, the sort of bottom line was that they had to be brought in at the same value as other members of the team or of the board. So this group, they had... Uh, successful placements at British Steel, at the Department of Health, at um, Broadmoor Prison, at Broadmoor Institute, all sorts of placements, which which led to quite untangible results, really. I mean, I think over the years I've been working with Barbara and then this group called the Incidental Unit. Well, originally in 2016, it was called O&I, Organisation and Imagination, mm-hmm. which was to uh, resurface the work of APG and, and try and sort of bring it to light into what we currently would need in order to to affect small placements. Um, currently, it's called the Incidental Unit, mm-hmm. and I think in well, 2016 I set up a, a campaign called the Boardroom Revolution with the Minister of Culture then Ed Vasey, who was a few piano people of mine. Yeah, um, and he this was sort of, but it felt like it was it landed a little bit on ears which weren't ready for it to be heard. Why would we have an artist? You know, what's the value of it? And even in 2014, when I was working at Lloyds Bank, I was working with their, their boardroom with three music and officers. Um, and it was about inclusive leadership. It was about listening in different ways. And it was about helping the bank become more efficient in their processes. And we were using the analogy of, sort of diversity of an orchestra as, as ways of thinking. And it probably got as far as it, could have at the time but now it feels like there's a real openness to what the arts can bring now in the pandemic actually you know people have turned to the arts people have been listening and suddenly understand why you know what would our society be like without the arts and and, mm-hmm. and how much it's needed in so many different areas so I think now well the objective of my research is to actually go back historically and try and ascertain the value, and that might not be a financial value, but the changes that the placements had, because I've been unable to really put time into that um, side of things, but also current placements. You know, what are artists who are in placements? What are they actually 
changing? How are they adding value? And that, again, not necessarily financial value, but it might be cultural value or ideas or challenging strategy with the hope and the aim that we can get some more placements into potentially music and officers clients. Some people are you know, interested, but they do need, it's a language coming back to that um, discussion about language. It's how to articulate it in a language that they can justify having an artist on their payroll, essentially. Yeah. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have every board, board have an artist? I think it's so essential to have that level of thought, that critical thinking. And actually through the, pandemic my husband and I for the first time are on a team together as consultants working mm-hmm. for KPMG for a, an art biennale and his level of critical thinking is just you know it's, it's it's a different way a different approach it's very uncompromising and it's what the team needs in this context and to have that approach and, and that sort of level of thought on subjects which some sometimes I think artists can spend six months thinking and reading and researching on a theme, which sometimes in the corporate world might be given six minutes. Exactly. And to have artists come in and give that critical approach and that level of depth of thinking and the challenge that actually is needed in the corporate world, a challenge to strategy, a challenge to really what is the outcome, what's the purpose, Mm -hmm. I think could really be, if it was a little bit more understood could really change the direction of a lot of the corporate messaging and a lot of the outcomes of yeah corporate world and so so i guess what your work is then highlighting and what your research will be highlighting as well is the value coming back to that word not at face value being a monetary value to a company or a business but how it can make a company, the society within the company, grow and develop. And eventually that will translate into financial gain because it's, it's more efficient, it's more streamlined, it's more creative, it's in, thinking outside the box. So do you then think projects like yours, like the research project that you're going to do and all your other activities – that the projects like these are actually the opportunities for the arts at large to show businesses our worth. And as a result, that will hopefully work its way up the ladder to governments, etc., to to be able to um, broaden the support for the arts but that we are sort of not sort of that we are taking control and taking a lead in how our value can be monetized definitely but i think we've got to be careful not to focus on the monetizing Mm -hmm. because i think value can be i mean there's so many other shifts of thought of value and I think you know for example one of the placements in the 70s Ian Brakewell mm-hmm. had a placement at Broadmoor and um, his his role was actually in the architectural um, side of things to to he was paid as a placement to be part of the architectural team mm-hmm. when he was there he saw the, the the situation for the for the patients inside he saw the sort of shocking environment that they were in and he photographed that and he was told that he'd stepped 
outside of his role as, as the architect. So he was very much reprimanded and actually, I think, taken off. Mm. It was at a late, so you could, on face value, that was perhaps, well, it wasn't a failure, but you could, you know, if people were analysing that placement, that didn't work out. A few years later, BBC made a documentary on the state of Broadmoor using mm-hmm. Ian's, own, the only footage was Ian's photographs and Ian's recounts. And that then led to the reform of the, of the whole um setup so the value there was there was a societal shift and a total you know so it's hard to place a monetal value and actually Mark Carney and um has just done a podcast on interestingly on this idea of value but that Mm -hmm. again shows how you know Mark Carney is I think I really admire him he's very hugely intelligent economist but the art world has actually been saying that for 40 50 years and it's often way ahead always I'd say way ahead of society as we know it's a very narrow view that the corporate world takes so if they are able to open up and allow more time to have conversations with artists who are actually often 50 you know 50 years ahead of where they're at even just taking the the words of the HI you know agile thinking inclusive mm-hmm. leadership blah, blah, you know all these words are actually as musicians inherent in how we collaborate and make music and as artists concepts of failure you know been around for the years and, and the but there is a massive shift that people have to take to allow for new ideas and to understand this new system of of thought and and mm-hmm. yes it has to translate for some people it might be important to be using language about uh, value and benefit and you know financial gain because Lloyds isn't going to employ an artist you know to show innovation no. however also might because they are looking for a differentiator because it'll come back to the bottom line of attracting the talent and retaining talent mm-hmm. but ultimately I think what we're you know what we'd like to see is just this understanding of the value of what artists can bring as thought leaders as courageous individuals mm-hmm. and there's people wanting to understand and get to the bottom of concepts and ideas to further society for good. So based on that, would you suggest that the value then and our job as artists is then to make it clear that we are not a luxury, that art is not an add-on, but it's something that can positively infiltrate society and build a society. That's basically what I hear from what you're saying. Yeah, I think so. And I think that's inherent in all of us, you know, but it might not be that all artists would like this role either. You know, it's more, it's sort of, it's conceptual. It might be a poet, it might be a philosopher. It might not be the concert pianist who's so brilliant at performing the piano, but actually doesn't, necessarily want to have this repositioning and you know it's I'm not saying it's for all artists as a a responsibility but I think all artists are doing this anyway you know as artists you're bringing wonderful music to the stage you're enrapturing audiences you're allowed you know that's just happening and there might be some musicians there might be some artists there might be some philosophers there might be some poets who are more concept driven or you know who like the idea of challenging or like the idea of strategy because it does you know there's a very fine line between conceptual thinking and strategy who Mm -hmm. would like to have these placements but I know some really good friends who 
are the most inspiring performers who actually wouldn't, you know, it doesn't, which is totally fine. They're bringing a new slant to the argument, I suppose. Well, they're just doing their thing. They're just performing, you know, beautiful music, incredible music. They're they're performing in, in a way that, that does transport people, you know, and that's the, that is ultimately what we want as, as musicians. It's, it's to give enjoyment and to, to bring, to bring beauty and to bring comfort or, and to bring people together through music making. Yeah. Now then showcase consultancy. I'm interested to know about what you're doing in showcase consultancy, because it's, I, my sense is that it's sort of a flowering of all the different projects that you've been involved with over the years, that all those projects prepared you for the role that you're in now. Do you want to mm. expand a bit more on that? Yeah, perhaps. I, I definitely feel like the integration of the different projects are coming is coming together. It's actually at the end of the summer, in mid-summer, when everything culturally around us was sort of crumbling and you just you know I was having these conversations with with young artists you know do a lot of mentoring and and thinking you know really what what can we bring now to in this immediacy this urgency what what can we bring and I did know of this company called Showcase Culture Showcase Management who mm-hmm. um, are essentially arts and business they do sponsorship for the arts so I got in contact with with him and um that led to conversations and a couple of months later, yeah, we've set up a new arm of it, which probably will become it called Showcase Consultancy. And we're currently consulting for KPMG for mm-hmm. this um, Art Biennale. It's very much currently more arts focused. So Joss, my husband's involved in it, but it's also with a digital platform called CoStar and CoStar enable an integrated approach for businesses. It's a it's a managed produce platform, almost like a little bit like Patreon within YouTube, but it's sort of YouTube on steroids, if you like, because it is so managed and produced. <laughs> um, but it, it does enable new income streams, essentially. So that really attracted me to develop this um, consultancy to to bring together businesses, musicians, online activities to create more sustainable models for the culture sector wonderful well that's everything that you're talking about is just so exciting and inspiring because i think it's it's so important for young musicians to know that they they're this vessel of potential beyond their instrument you know, and if they want to focus on their instrument, that's wonderful and absolutely should do so, as you've said before. But there's the possibility of branching out and having a much broader and perhaps more tangible influence on society, as all your projects have been doing thus far, which is wonderful. So th- I want to finish with asking with a if you had to give yourself advice when you were about to finish your studies, what's the one piece of advice that you would want the young Tessa to focus on? I've been asked this question so many times and I've just <laughs> now that I've moved on so much in the last 
couple of years. I, um, perhaps I'd say it's, it's really hard because you kind of look back and you think, well, this happened because of that and this happened because of this mistake. And, you know, and so and I was always quite brave in just doing. But mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I, I think I would have benefited from someone saying do more in depth at the, from the beginning and don't just ride the wave enabling I think mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm a real enabler, and I thrive on the possibilities of what could be. And mm-hmm. I could, definitely would have benefited from someone saying, "Where's the depth? Do more in depth from an earlier stage." That came a little bit later, but um, perhaps five five years in, <laughs> and it was just all so exciting. And I just kind of carried on, you know, bringing things together in a in a very impassioned. But I could have done with a lot more structure earlier nice. on. So in-depth structure, but being willing and open to change. Yes, yeah, I think a good balance uh, is always healthy. Absolutely. Well, Tessa, thank you so much for this very inspiring chat. Um, It was really lovely to catch up with you. And I wish you all the best for your future endeavours and especially for your research that's coming up. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking forward to going in depth into value. (laughs) Absolutely. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of What Would Mozart Do? If you want to hear more, you can find other episodes on your podcast provider. Feel free to get in touch with me via Instagram at whatwouldmozartdo, follow me on Twitter or email info at whatwouldmozartdo.com.